Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. It is our pleasure to welcome a friend of Wolf Connections. He's been the host of Animal Planets Extinct or Alive for about six years. He's a conservationist uh, and a just a wonderful human being with all the work that he does around the globe to help wildlife and species that that need this attention brought to them. Forrest Galante, thank you so much for joining us via Zoom. Yes, sir. And taking the time out, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure connecting with you guys. Yeah, I, you know, we, we were talking just before we started and, and I was, you know, we were just discussing a couple of things. I, I went to your page just to look at your bio to get some information and man, you started this this biological wildlife journey from a very, very young age. Uh, I know you, I want to get some background on this because you were born here in the States. And then I believe at three months old, you moved to Zimbabwe in Africa. So just tell everybody about how that started and what was the reason for the move and how that happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been inundated with wildlife my entire life. So my family is Zimbabwean. I'm, I'm actually sixth generation Zimbabwean. So my family's been in Zimbabwe a very, very long time since it was Rhodesia and, and then some. Um, but my dad was an American. So my family came over here. They, they had me, they had my sister. And then we moved back to Zimbabwe basically straight away um, so that I could grow up in Zimbabwe, but have an American passport as my dad wanted, which uh, was a very smart move on his part because you know I wouldn't be where I am today otherwise. Um, and so yeah, I grew up in the bush of Zimbabwe, uh, lived on a big farm growing up. When, if I wasn't on the farm or in school, I was on safari because my family ran a safari business. So I literally just inundated with wildlife in every aspect of my life, uh, from, from where I lived to what the biz family business was to even going to school in Zimbabwe has wildlife associated with it. So I've just been obsessed with it. And, you know, not everybody is. Like my sister grew out of it, right? Like she's, she works in the fashion and makeup industry now. But I just like, I've just stayed on the straight and narrow, so to speak, and just have never not been obsessed with animals. What kind of animals were you seeing on a daily basis there? Oh, well, you know, we had a big farm and on the farm, we had all your standard stuff. We had cows and sheep and chickens and goats and things like that. But a farm in Zimbabwe, you know, it doesn't just have turkey and white-tailed deer like we have here in North America. So, um, you know, we'd get leopard incursions. Uh, we had baboons. We had vervet monkeys. I had one growing up. Um, when we were plowing the fields, uh, when I was a little boy one day, we came across an abandoned vervet monkey uh, that became like my best friend Chippy, and he used to sleep in the mosquito net above my bed like a bunk bed. Um, serval cats that that would roam around the house that we rescued. Blue dica, tiny little antelope, and the list goes on and on and on. You know, it's just like you'd imagine a farm here in the middle of, say, Texas or something. And oh, look at all the deer, look at all the turkeys, look at the black bears. It's like that in Africa, except with a lot more species diversity. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that must have been just a dream for you because like you said, you you stayed in this. And, and I was reading too. So your mom was a safari guide, right? That was part of the business that you ran. And she was one of the only or the first females to, to run the safari and guide. And a bush right? pilot, right? And a bush pilot. That's, that's correct. Yeah, she was the first female uh, combo bush pilot and safari guide in Africa. So essentially in the world. And um, yeah, so that was the family business, right? The farm was where we lived and we did grow crops and things like that. But the actual business was the safari industry. So when I wasn't on the farm, we were in the deep bush, the real bush, where it wasn't just a couple monkeys, but we had lions, ellies, rhinos, you know, you name it, it was there. And, uh, and as a little boy, I grew up spending time at those safari camps and, you know, I'd be confined to the, the constraints of the camp because it's not like a little five-year-old can go running around the deep bush of Africa without getting chewed by something. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I'd be flipping over logs and, you know, giving my mother gray hairs when she'd come back because I'd have cobras in my hands or something like that. And she'd, uh, <laughs> she'd be like freaking out, you know, and, and just realizing that no matter what, she was never going to keep me away from exciting animals. Oh, man. That, I mean, talk about growing, I mean, really growing up in, in the, and you want to talk about the backwoods. That's, that's the way to go. And, and you followed in that footstep because you were the youngest person to lead an international can, uh, canoe safari down the uh, Zambezi, right? That was something else that I, that I read that you kind of took that over as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, I mean, I don't think there's any official records of that such a thing, but at <laughs> age 14, uh, you know, I was like a, a little troublemaker and a ruffian and I'd spent all my time in the bush learning about animals. And, uh, you know, I think my, my mom and her business partner who ran the safari business just said, all right, well, let's 
kind of let them grow up a bit. And uh, they gave me the opportunity to run a canoe safari, which is probably the least dangerous of the incredibly dangerous safaris that my family <laughs> used to run. Um, and what that was, was, you know, guiding a group down the Zambezi River. I think it was four nights and five days, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, down the Zambezi River, which is full of hippos lined with crocodiles. Uh, and the list goes on, you know, we still have the elephants and the lions and everything else on shore and you still have to camp on shore every night. So, uh, yeah, at age 14, I did my, I, I guided my first safari. So how many people were on that safari? Uh, well, it was myself and then um, one other person from the business who was like our, our helper, the guy who would build the tents and the, he was actually the cook and the cook. And then um, I just had a, a, a couple, a French couple um, from Paris and they were not impressed when they got off their little bush flight and there was a 14-year-old <laughs> boy in his cocky shorts standing there with a giant rifle over his shoulder. <laughs> Very cool. Now, I mean, what's that like? What's that experience like for these people when they... Was it mostly, you know, smaller parties that would come? I mean, you're, I would imagine you're not having 20 people, you know, coming down the river with you. What, what was a typical four to five day trip like um, as you went down the river with, with those people? All, all different because, um, you know, the tented safaris, the walking safaris could be larger groups, but the canoe safaris um, typically had to be smaller. It's just, it's impossible to manage like say 10 canoes on the river because you just can't keep a track of everyone. And if one person drifts into a pot of hippos, that's the end. So you really have to make sure that the groups are smaller. And I think, you know, may, maybe with my, if my, my family or one of the PHs had been running the safari, they would have done three, three groups of guests or, you know, multiple clients. But with me being my first one, they're like, all right, this is a single couple. You can't screw this up too badly. <laughs> yeah. Worst case scenario only kills two people. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so I, think, um, I think it was intentional that I was given just a single couple to, to guide. I gotta hear. I gotta hear your most memorable yeah. story of that time period. Oh man! I mean, the stories go on and on and on. But even on that um, canoe safari, you know, the, this Frenchman was like the 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 guy. the The wife was lovely, or fiance, whatever she was. But the guy was like very arrogant, very cocky, and you know, had no interest. He was already displeased that a fourteen year old was bossing him around and telling him what to do. So he had no interest in like listening. And so, at one point in time, we're drifting down the river. It's beautiful, and you know we're looking at the lilac-breasted rollers and the beautiful birds and the trees, and there's hippos and uh, crocs and whatnot. And uh, you know, I, the whole time I'm telling him just like keep your canoe behind mine. You can do literally anything you like as long as you follow me, basically. And I can't remember what happened, but at some point I'm watching something or looking at something. And I look up, and he's just shooting past <laughs> me, going straight towards this the spit of shallow water. And I can see up ahead by the footprints and the bubbles that there's a pot of hippo right there. And I start screaming at him. I can't remember his name. But I start yelling at him. I'm like, stop, 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 stop. And he like looks back and like shrugs his shoulders and like keeps paddling like he's so tough. And I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> so I like jump my canoe and I start paddling as fast as I can. And I, I, I quickly like manage to cut him off. And as I cut him off, this hippo comes up and hits the underside of my canoe that, you know, if he had kept going would have been him. And, and it didn't quite get me or anything like that. But if he had approached them at speed, because what hippos do is they don't feel threatened when they can sink under. But when they're in a shallowish area like that where they feel threatened, they'll pop up, you know, and, and kind of attack from below. And, uh, yeah, the hippo kind of rocked up and, and gave me a smack. And fortunately, it wasn't them. It, it was me that went flying. And, uh, you know, and that was because I was sideways and to cut them off. Had they gone in at full speed, I think they would have gone right into the center of the pot of hippos. And that would have been the end. <laughs> oh, no. And uh, funnily enough, the uh, the... Frenchman decided to listen to me after that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you say, I mean, what's funny is you say that this was the least dangerous out of the, the tours and the, and the guiding and the, that you guys did, but hippopotamuses are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet. Yeah, they're, they're like I the mean, grizzly bears of the... And they're even more dangerous than that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they, they have no fear of anything as far as I know. They are. They're very dangerous animals. It's because they're skittish, you know? They're like, they're very nervous wary, skittish animals. And I think that's what makes them so dangerous. They're not, you know, grizzly bear is very confident. It can look at you and choose to ignore you and continue on its way. Whereas when a hippo looks at you, it gets, and you guys understand this being animal people, and I'm sure you've seen abused rescues and things that ha are, have this kind of nature. Mm -hmm. But when a hippo looks at you, it gets nervous, right? It gets, mm -hmm. it gets that bit of like jitters, so to speak. Here comes my wolf creature, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, the hippos, they get nervous, right? And they start to get this like frantic energy 
And unfortunately, the way they respond to that is by using their mass and size to attack. You know, it's not to retreat. Whereas an antelope might retreat when it gets nervous. A hippo uh, is the aggressor when it gets nervous. And they're just very, very nervous, very skittish animals. And the problem is they're so big and so lumbering, yet so silent, you can approach them very quickly and put them in that nervous state. And so they, they are very, very dangerous. And I don't want to go on and on about the danger because I don't want to dis- discourage anybody from taking a canoe safari or any safari <laughs> in Southern Africa. Right. It's just phenomenal. And, and yeah, th- times great. have changed. There's a lot more things that safety things in place nowadays. But uh, yeah, my family did and, and still does in some capacity, like walking safaris, canoe safaris, not like get in the Range Rover and drive around the paved roads of Kruger mm. National Park. They did the real thing. Like you fly into the bush, get in a canoe, walk to camp, that kind of thing with the animals on, in the Zambezi Valley. And it was, uh, I was very lucky to grow up with that. Man, incredible. That is incredible. Talk about then, because you were there, I think to you were, I know you were in your teens and just to tell everybody the, 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 the events that led to, unfortunately, your family got pushed out of your farm. There was something that, that happened uh, in your teens that you guys had to fly back and move to the States. So what happened there? Because you guys had to leave uh, Africa, right? Yeah, well, there was a big political upheaval when the, the president at the time, President Robert Mugabe, <laughs> was starting to lose his grip of power. And in order to, remain, remain, um, to con- keep control, what he did was basically created racism where otherwise there really wasn't any. He created, you know, kind of a blacks against whites type thing in the media. And it was actually, it's funny to see some of the stuff that's happened here because there's, there's resemblances of what's happened, what happened when I was growing up in Africa. But it created this, you know, divisiveness between the races as opposed to the political parties like you see kind of currently going on in the United States. And um, I don't want to get political, but very sadly... President Robert Mugabe created conflict, like I said, where there was none. And what he said was, oh, you know, these these terrible white colonialists, and don't get me wrong, they were colonialists many generations ago. But, you know, he said these terrible white colonialists have come here and taken your land and you can go and take it back at, by any means possible. And that created violence, you know, that created 14-year-olds with AK-47s high on what we call brown-brown to, you know, come in on these incursions. And, and it it created all this conflict. And so, Long story short, <clears throat> you know, we lost, uh, we lost neighbors. There was a lot of people were being murdered and tortured. And we were in like a, an affluent farming area. So our farm was very desirable, even though it was very small compared to many of our neighbors. And, uh, you know, one day the knock came on the door and it was time to get out. And, and if we didn't, we would have ended up like the neighbor down the road who was, you know, tortured and murdered. So uh, my mom packed us all up and, and here we are in California. <laughs> Man, wow! I mean, what what was that like then to come back? I mean, obviously you didn't have any recollection, I, I believe, of the states before that. So, what is that like getting uprooted really from your home, and then to come here? And because I was reading, you had to sort of reacclimate yourself and try and find you know that wildlife passion here when you got to California, right? Very, very much so. Yeah, the culture shock was very real. I I'd had multiple visits to the United States as my dad was an American as a kid. And, you know, in my mind, the whole of the U.S. was like Disneyland, right? It's like all these big lights and these flashing buildings. And, you know, we don't have skyscrapers and Toys R Us and the kind of things that you have here in America, like TV with all the cartoons and all that kind of stuff. So to me, America was all like Disneyland. It was just like this, it was like a giant Toys R Us coming into the United States, which was, would have been, I think, wonderful if it wasn't for the circumstances. But with the circumstances under which we we traveled here, we went from living on this beautiful 200-acre farm, having a safari business, um, you know, everything I'd ever known my entire life, to living crammed into a one-bedroom apartment in Oakland, California on welfare. Um, so it was quite a shock. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as a 14-year-old boy full of testosterone, I played a lot of rugby. I spent all my time in the bush. And I just like, I guess I got angry. Um, and I'm not really that especially not today. I'm not a very angry person. I'm a very jovial person. But at the time, I think I was filled with anger and no real outlet for it. So there was just this culture shock where I grew up kind of rough and tumble. If you had a problem with someone, you know, you went outside and sorted it out. And then the second, second or third day of school, I had a problem with someone and socked them in the face. And then I was in handcuffs, you know, and it was just like, it was things like that that were ongoing that, yeah, I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't trying to beat people up or anything like that. It was just this massive culture shock. Like I couldn't carry a gun. I couldn't carry a knife. Uh, you know, I couldn't drink alcohol in Zimbabwe. There's no real drinking age. Um, 
you know, if you started a fight, like it didn't end at the fight, people would jump you and threaten you with knives and things like that. I grew up old British boarding school, you know, it was like fisticuffs to sort out a problem. And that was the end of the problem. And it just, especially being in, in Oakland, you know, it was like, they were like gangs and like, it was crazy. So there was just a lot of culture shock, a lot of problems for me and to contribute to everything else my mom had going on problems for her because of it. So uh, it took a little while to assimilate for sure. So when you, so when you, you assimilate, you know, when you finally, I think you found it more because you, when you went to school, you, you, you really study a lot of marine biology. You did a lot of uh, work with lizards and reptiles and things like that. So did you make your way to the coast a little bit? Did you get out of Oakland and, and get to the, to the water? And that was sort of where everything started to click for you? Because that's what it seemed like. Yeah, spot on, spot on, John. So um, what happened was we, we lived in Oakland for six months, nine months. I can't even remember anymore. And my mom could just see that things were like spiraling out of control. You know, like I would be I'd be in fights, there'd be problems. I'd be running around like Tilden National Park, which is like a fancy park in San Francisco, in my khaki shorts, catching newts in the creeks with all these like uppity people in their North Face jackets being like, hey, what is he doing? And, um, you know, I, I, I think my mom could just see there were problems. So she managed to get us out of there and move us into a coastal city, tiny little town called Cayucas, California on the central coast. And she's like, uh, you know, there's no trouble to be had here nothing could be further from growing up in the bush than a surfer town in California. And um, she was right. Nothing could be further, but there was still trouble to be had. Uh, that being said, um, I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I got on with it. I went to a new school, kind of the same sort of pattern started to emerge. And then one day at a garage sale, I, uh, I picked up a, a pole spear, which is a, a spear fishing stick with three prongs on the end of it, and a rubber band on the back end of it, a hand-powered spear. And I bought it for $1, which at the time was quite a lot of money even for me because I you know, didn't have anything. And uh, borrowed a mask and snorkel from someone and jumped in the ocean to try and, try and hunt uh, some fish to eat. And it was like I had this sort of, I guess, come to Jesus moment, if you will, like this revelation. Like all of a sudden I had no more anger, no more frustration, no more worries about culture shock, nothing. I just like, I found, I found wild again. I found the bush. The coast of Central California is wild. There's sea lions and elephant seals and otters and harbor seals and great white sharks and giant Pacific octopus. And the list of fish goes on for days. I mean, it's really, really wild. It's not like above land and uh, above the waterline in California, which is, you know, pretty tame. Like, yeah, we have a couple mountain lions and a bear here and there, but it doesn't compare to Africa. But as soon as you dive into the ocean here, it does, you know, it compares to Africa in the sense of just being this absolutely wild, incredible ecosystem where you never know what you're going to see around the next turn. And I, I kind of felt at home in that situation and, and uh, became obsessed with it, you know, became totally obsessed with it. And, and that was kind of my, my meditation, if you will. So I started free diving and spearfishing and, uh, you know, still doing things I used to do as a kid. I grew up, I had 14 terrariums in my bedroom growing up in Zimbabwe. And then when I moved to California, all new species, right? They're all new snakes and lizards and we don't have rattlesnakes in Africa. So those were super cool. And like, I was off catching those things. So, you know, I found my bit of nature here in the United States and eventually went to university to study that on an academic level. You know, if I, I always had a clear path as a boy. I'd grow up, I'd be a safari guide, I'd stay in the bush. But when you come to California, that, you know, there's no safari guides in California, not real ones. Um, so, you know, I found another path by which to stay close to wildlife, and that was to become an academic biologist. Now, I'm no longer an academic biologist, but that was, that was the next trend. Man, that's that. It seems like that transition from land to sea for you was just very easy. I mean, once you fit, once you figured it out, it seemed like you you transferred everything that you learned in the bush and on land in Africa right to the Pacific Ocean, and it just it was a smooth transition for you. Uh, smooth, yes, in the sense of I found a passion and I, I found a calling, but it was a slow and lengthy period, you know. And what I mean by that is you you don't. You don't pick up a mask and snorkel and a pole spear and become proficient in the ocean that day. It's just like you don't walk into, into wolf connection and connect with all the animals that day and understand their body language and their behavior, right? It's the same thing. So it was a very slow, slow process. But I'm a very obsessive person. Uh, and when I, when I like something, I go all out on it. And I, I fell in love with this. So I, you know, I picked up better and better wetsuits. Uh, I started to make a name for myself in the spearfishing world because I was getting these huge fish with this rudimentary gear and, and breaking free dive records and things like that. And then, 
you know, then I got, got sponsors. So now I had cool, fancy gear. So, you know, it was a slow process. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a week. Like I started this at age 14, 15, maybe. And, you know, it wasn't until I was in my, in my late teens, early twenties that I was like this notable person in that industry. And at that time I was already in university and studying the field as well. So I would learn about the fish in class, right? And then everybody else would go home and fucking Netflix and chill or something. And I'd go jump in the ocean and look for that thing I just learned about. So it, it, it kind of, it just kind of that obsession and that passion just kept evolving and kept, kept pushing me forward. Yeah. And your mind's, and your mind's wired differently that way because you grew up, I mean, that I, I was, I mean, that you growing up the way that you did, obviously you're like, I need to know, see, touch, feel, and see what this, this thing, this animal is all about. And so I can get the data that way instead of reading or, or, you know, learning it that way. A hundred percent. I say this on my show all the time. The, the greatest scientists are those that have observational data. You know, those, it, it's like, it's like if I come to the wolf connection and tell you guys about wolves, cause I've read something in a book, right? Sure. I might have a better literary or academic knowledge, but you know, the animals, right? Nothing I can ever tell you that I have read is going to be the same as the days in and days out that you have spent observing these creatures. And it's a pity because there has become a very, very real divide in the sciences where, where people on my side of that equation, people that like read and think they know more, think that they're better than the observational scientists or the people that live and breathe these creatures every day, all day long, because they don't have a formal education. Um, and I, in my opinion, it's not true at all. Like I will never, ever, like if I got a PhD in wolf behavior tomorrow, I still think you guys would know more about wolves than I ever will because you see them every single day of your lives. And I stand by that. What, what, you're right, my brain is wired differently in the sense of I come from your guys' side of the equation where I grew up around it, inundated with it, obsessed with behavior, interaction, observational data, and then I got the academic education. So I've just really tried to pair them together. Obviously, you can't be an expert in every single species on the planet, right? It's not possible, <laughs> but um, I certainly was wired to learn about the animals in the ocean from an observational standpoint and the animals on land, as well as from an academic one. And I think that's what has made me such a good, well-rounded biologist. So when you, how did, so how did Extinct or Alive get started? Because this, I, I love, first of all, I love the the concept and I, I love what the the show is all about because it's, just go just first yeah just go on to how it got started what was the was it your idea did you you know how did it go yeah absolutely um it so yeah so i got through university you know i i i got degrees in biology with special emphasis in marine biology as we just discussed also in herpetology which is reptiles and amphibians and then i started working as a biologist so i would work uh here in santa barbara where i live out on the california channel islands I worked on everything you can imagine from weeds to ants to rodents to rattlesnakes to foxes, you name it. And it was great because I was outside. I was working with wildlife. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't walking in the elephant in the bush with elephants, but it was spending my days outside working with wildlife, which is what I always really wanted to do no matter what. Um, then, <laughs> funny story, one day I came home from the California Channel Islands. I was on a three-month-long project, terrible contract, counting ants. I mean, Terrible. Invasive Argentine <laughs> ants talk like two. You're sitting there with a clicker going, you know, 187,000, 187 and 1,000. Oh the list goes on. It's brutal work. But uh, I come home, plop down on the couch. I was like still in my overalls, filthy, dirty from digging up ant nests on the Channel Islands. Plop down on the couch, exhausted. And my, my girlfriend at the time, um, who's now my wife, says to me, she's like, look at this stupid thing. And I'm like, what is this? And it's a show called Naked and Afraid on television, right? And it's, I'm like, what is this rubbish? And it's, it's, I literally, I didn't even get through the episode. I, I thought it was such nonsense. And it's the show where two people get dumped in the middle of the woods, mm -hmm. uh, naked with nothing, no tools, nothing. And the question is, can they survive for 21 days? You know, and I, I looked at it and laughed and thought, wow, that's absolutely hilarious. And Jessica turns to me and she says, you know, I, I've been out with you for longer periods than that. I've seen you make fires in half this time, build blinds and shelters, you know, all just for fun to try and find animals. And these people are doing it and whinging and crying about it like it's so difficult. Why don't you do it? And at the time, you know, I had no money. I was making $14 an hour as a biological tech counting ants and all that shit. And um, so I was like, yeah, why not? So I sent one cocky email to the production company um, that, that made Naked and Afraid. I never filled out a costing application, nothing. I literally just sent in an email and was like, I've seen your show. 
it's great, but I can do a lot better. Like these people that you're calling experts survivalists are, are pretty useless. Like they, they have no actual experience. And um, so they, they wrote back and you know, basically said, prove it. 10 days later, I was on a plane to Panama. I went and, I went and what I would call had a vacation for 21 days on the Panamanian jungle, which was an absolute delight. Um, I ate myself sick on oysters. I found uh, hundreds of pounds of, of yucca, you know, a, wi- a wild root vegetable. I made a spear and went spear fishing. I mean, it was like, it was a treat. It was like a vacation. I loved it. I had so much fun. I was smiling and laughing the whole time. Producers kept rolling their eyes, telling me it was a disaster because, you know, you're, that's not what the show's about. Like, you're not struggling enough. And I'm like, sorry, this is fun. And I uh, <laughs> came home, um, went back to being a biologist. Like, you know, that was fun. That was my vacation. Didn't even think about it. Six months, nine months later, the show came out, right? Well, the show was a massive hit. It was a huge success. It was, it was a smash. Like, you know, four and a half million people tuned in to see this naked African kid running around the jungle spearing fish. And, uh, <laughs> and um, anyway, long story short, that I got my five minutes of fame that everybody of the 300 plus participants that have done Naked and Afraid get. You know, the reporters call you and say, how was it? What, did it suck? Was it awful? Was it terrible? Did you love it? And I just say, ah, no, thanks. I'm not interested in talking about that. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I just like, it was fun. You know, that was a vacation for me. It's, it's really not important. And they're like, oh, well, what do you want to talk about? And I was like, well, I could tell you about the wildlife work I'm doing. I could tell you about restoring habitat for Channel Island foxes or how, you know, white sea bass are, are their numbers are improving because of the wonderful work by California Fish and Game. You know, like I'll talk about things that are important. I'm not going to sit here and talk about me running around, you know, dangling my dick out in the jungles of Panama. And uh, <laughs> most of them just like click hung up, you know, and half of them were like, all right, tell us, tell us a story, I guess. So I started telling them stories and sharing images. And a couple of these stories went massively viral, like bigger than Naked and Afraid viral, like cover of the Daily Mail and all these things, you know, man bitten by a hammerhead shark in California Channel Islands where they're not supposed to be. Man catches biggest lobster in North America, like silly, silly things that were true, but, you know, I'd never tried to promote them. They were just things I'd done as a biologist. Anyway, as these stories went viral, people started to contact me and say, well, this is really interesting. I didn't know you did all this rare animal work. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is my job. I'm a biologist um, and a high risk one at that. You know, I like doing the, the, the fun stuff that gets, uh, gets the old heart beating. And, uh, you know, this is a very long winded story, but eventually I got hooked up with a young guy who was a producer um, who had worked on Whale Wars, you know, the conservation show about the Sea Shepherd Whale Wars. And he had never created a TV show before, but he really wanted to. And he said, hey, man, you know, why don't we partner up and try and create a TV show? Like, what do you, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to work with critically endangered, edge of extinction type stuff, you know, things that are really, really need the exposure and need the attention and not necessarily, you know, rhinos and, and panda bears because everybody knows them, but the stuff that people aren't really looking at. And he's like, well, you know, that's not that sexy. What if, you know, what if it's extinct animals that might still be there? And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I, I know for a fact that some of these animals could potentially still be out there just because some stuffy guy in, a, in an office in a British smoking jacket says they're not lo- no longer here doesn't necessarily mean he's right. Mm-hmm. And so we developed this idea for Extinct or Alive. And to Patrick, my partner's credit, was really more his idea than mine. Um, and then we took it out. We pitched it. We found a partner in a production company named Hot Snakes Media based out of New York. Like this all took years. This whole time I was just a biologist. I was just back to work, you know, but my side hustle, so to speak, was this, this like fantasy dream of hosting this adventure travel wildlife show on Animal Planet where Steve Irwin was, you know, this will never happen, but I mean, well, you never know, you know, kind of thing. So I was working my day job as a biologist and then I'd come home and crank some emails at night or on the weekends I'd fly, drive to LA for a meeting or fly to New York to try and discuss. And it took like a year and a half, two years, something like that. And eventually the first place that we pitched it that said, maybe came back around and said, sure, we'll do a pilot. Now everybody else said no, but Animal Planet said, we'll do a pilot. And I was like, holy shit, like I'm going to go make a show about conservation. This is insane. Like I can't believe this, you know, all of this because I talked about a lobster I caught in 2012. Like this is nuts. And um, I was like blown away. And we went and made a special on the Tasmanian tiger in, in Tasmania uh, for Animal Planet's Monster Week, which was kind of like their, their answer to Shark Week back then. And uh, it was the hit. You know, it did, it did super well, just as well as my Naked and Afraid show did, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think only like one in 100 pilots go to series or something like that. But the show did really well because we told an honest message about conservation. We talked about this animal that 
might still be here, but as, as far as we know, isn't still here. You know, we caught some cool, caught Tasmanian devils on camera and quolls and talked about habitat destruction, Tasmania and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff I wanted to talk about, like all the important stuff. And um, yeah, that, that materialized into being a series. And, and, you know, here we are four or five years after that. It's a fascinating idea too. I've heard of it happening before too, which is just unbelievable how many scientists are sure that something's extinct and then a farmer catches one, his dog catches one in the backyard or something. I think I heard about that with a weasel or something. It's become popular, you know, like when, when we first started pitching it, like I always, I compare myself to uh, Percy Fitzpatrick, the guy from the Lost City of Z, when he stands up in front of the room of, of stuffy British scientists and he's like, I'm going to find the Lost City. And they're like, you're insane. You know, it, it was like that when I first started um, pitching this to like colleagues and other scientists that I, I had through, you know, my various work. And they're like, you're crazy. Like, what a waste of time. Except now we found eight different animals that were lost to science. And now it's a whole field. Like GWC, Global Wildlife Conservation, has like the search for the lost species campaign. Leonardo DiCaprio posts about my finds. Uh, you know, there's like all these pop-up organizations that are looking for lost species. None of this existed when I started. It's like created this kind of revolution with the idea behind like hope and the hope that these things could still be hanging on by a thread. And if we can find them, then hopefully we can bring them back from the edge of extinction. And it's really, it's created an, an entire industry. And of course, this is something I never, ever expected. I never even expected to find one, let alone eight. But, um, you know, it's just, it's evolved into this like pretty big thing. There's books on it now, all kinds of stuff. And it's really cool. It's like a whole new field of conservation that we created. So when you find a species, does it follow up with a, a genuine initiative, like by a wildlife agency to assist that animal? That's always the goal. Um, but it's, you know, it's all over the map. It's not like me sitting here in my office in Santa Barbara can manage the ongoing survival of a leopard in Zanzibar, right? Like there's nothing right. I can do that can really contribute to that. So, you know, I, the way I try and describe it is I'm the mercenary, right? I'm the hide and seek champ that you call in <laughs> to go look for the thing. Right. And then I turn it over to whatever government bodies, uh, local organizations, et cetera, can, can work to preserve the species. Uh, some of them have been huge. You know, we raised tons and tons of money for the Galapagos tortoise that we found. There've been multiple return expeditions. They've got her in captivity in a breeding program. You know, some of them have been massive. Others have been smaller uh, next to nothing. Uh, in Sri Lanka, they're trying to extend the national park by three miles into the ocean because of the lost shark species we found. You know, there's been some big ramifications, but ultimately, like, I'm not trying to, you know, like parachute in and be like, chump, thump my chest and be like, I'm the guy, you know, I found it and then leave because that doesn't do any good for conservation. I come in, I collaborate with local on the ground scientists, uh, farmers, villagers, fishermen. It really doesn't matter who they are, but people, like we said, those observational people that could have potentially seen the species try and track it down, try and get proof, and then turn that over to the local governing body or organization that can then manage the ongoing survival of that species. So I really am just the, the, the gun for hire in the sense of go find it. And I'm very lucky because, you know, that obsessive passion that I spoke about, that upbringing in South Africa, or sorry, Zimbabwe, but in Southern Africa, um, that, that ability to track wildlife that I learned from my family as a safari guide, that uh, the academic... Um, well-roundedness that I have from going to school, like all those things kind of perfectly mash up, which I never knew, of course, going into this to help me find at finding these really, 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 really hard to find animals. And it's, it's been successful. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best part is I, you know, I love what, what Steven said and you, you were saying before is that you're just, the fact that these animals are now getting the attention that they really deserve because like you said, from the observational standpoint, and these are, there's so many species out there, like you say mm -hmm. that, you know, we don't, the ocean is massive. I mean, land, I feel like if you're, if you're looking for an animal that's maybe on land, it's a little bit easier, but mm -hmm. you, you finding some of these species in the ocean, I mean, it, it, there's miles and miles there's, and miles. There's you know, probably animals that have gone extinct in the, in the ocean that we never knew existed, existed in the first yeah. It's crazy. I mean, just to give them the observation and yeah, and to give them the the uh, the platform. I mean, you give them the platform for that, right? I mean, did you ever, like you said, you didn't see this coming? No, I, I, I never knew that any of this would go to where it is. I mean, the ocean is huge. Literally last week, they discovered a new species of whale off the coast of Mexico near the San Benitos Islands, you know, and that's wow. a new species of whale. Like we're not Damn. talking about an ant or a cockroach, you know, or a lizard. We're talking about a freaking whale. So, uh, you know, the, right. it's a big place. There's a lot of places to hide. 
And I always wanted to work with, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I always wanted to spend time outdoors, adventure, explore, and work with wildlife. Um, I left academia behind completely to, you know, pursue promoting conservation in media, but I never knew that it would have the massive impact that it's had. I mean, I get several hundred messages per day on my social media and website that say, you know, because of you, because of your show, because of your book, whatever it might be, you know, I have switched my career. I have changed my major in college. I am volunteering at a wildlife organization for the first time, you know, whatever it might be. And that to me is the biggest impact, right? It's not, it's not even the finds of these animals, which is great. And I love that I'm finding them and it's important, but it's the fact that we're reaching millions and millions of people across the globe and inspiring some small percentage of them to care and contribute to conservation. And that, that to me is what's super important. I want to ask too about this because you were here at Wolf Connection, and I believe you were you were doing an episode where you were looking for I don't know if it was a lost uh, canid species or a lost wolf species, right? Because that's I don't know if that's how you got hooked up with with us initially. How did you get here? Because I know there was you know I don't know if there was a partnership before that or that was the first time you had you had come on the property. No, that that was the first time. Um, my my uh, uh, line producer Steve found you guys, and the reason being we were looking for the Southern Rocky Mountain wolf subspecies, which had been hunted to extinction, don't quote me on this, 70-ish years ago. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in order to find an extinct subspecies, you need to try and identify what that subspecies is and what it looks like. And in order to do that, what I wanted to do was try and find an animal that had similar physical characteristics to the Southern Rocky Mountain wolf. As you guys know, like the animals that you have, wolves in general, some are black, some are white, some are beige, you know, some are big, some weigh 120 pounds, some weigh 60 pounds, you know, you just don't know. So what I was trying to do was take all of the historical data, observational data of the Southern Rocky Mountain wolf species and compare that with an animal that you guys had on your facility. Now, unfortunately, I don't remember the animal's name, but we did find one that was a very, very close match um, aesthetically speaking, to what a Southern Rocky Mountain wolf looked like. So we pulled, took some hair from, from her, I can't remember her name anymore, and had it analyzed to try and figure out what amount of deviation there was from you know, pure, pure gray wolf to try and, try and identify some genomes in the Southern Rocky Mountain wolf. And then if we could compare those, those genes with something that we could find out in the wild, we might be able to say the, the objective was not, oh, look, there's a Southern Rocky Mountain wolf because the odds of that were very slim, but maybe through some koi wolves or maybe through some hybrids, there's still a little bit of that DNA pool floating around, right? Because we all know, you know, dogs, wolves, coyotes, they can all interbreed. Um, you know, wolf, wolf subspecies can interbreed when they cross range. So the idea was to try and find some genetics for that animal. We did find a koi wolf. We weren't able to get genetics from it. Unfortunately, you know, it was a bit of a, it wasn't a loss, but it wasn't exactly a, a home run like some of the other ones are. Um, Regardless, that's how I came to find you guys. And then when I got there and saw all the incredible animals, I met, met you guys, you know, it was such a great atmosphere. And I, I love everything that you do and what you stand for that, you know, we've maintained this relationship ever since. I've been back three or four times and, and it's great. I, I, I think it's amazing what you guys do. No, I, I think, remember, I don't know if it was, I, I know we have pictures of you with Coda. Mm. I don't know if that was the one uh, that you were in there with, but he, he was the male. He came from Alaska with his brother, Chance. So I think- and there's Coda, a female too. Uh, I'm trying. Did to he said he said it was a female. I wonder what she looked like. Do you remember what color she was? Because we don't have that many. I mean, most of them are white. She was beige, like the Rocky Mountain. Oh, wolves. that might have been that might have been Nolly, or or, or Anora. Ooh, might have been Nolly. That sounds very. Familiar. She's a koi. Sorry, wolf. I don't She's remember her name. No, it's okay. This is her. Sorry, I don't know. Uh, sorry, I know this is an audio recording, but can you tell who that is? That's oh, that's Coda. That's Coda. Yeah, yeah. he's the male. That's the male. Yeah, Coda. So, okay, yeah, it was yeah, a male. Yeah. I apologize. No, no big deal. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, so it was Coda, and you know, just the the bridge of the snout, the way the ears are positioned mm-hmm. on the head, the coat coloration in specific. There were a lot of things that Coda expressed that were very similar to all of the historical reports of the Southern Rocky Mountain wolf. Now, whether or not he has any Southern Rocky Mountain yeah. wolf in him, we don't really know. But it was the best thing that I had to go off of at the time. Wow. Now, is, is it, yeah, go for it. No, right. Are you doing this kind of research before you find any species? Or how do you start the process of locating a species that people don't think is there? Some of them are, are easier than others in the sense of, you know, finding a subspecies of a wolf in a country where we still have wild wolves and they've hybridized with coyotes and dogs is much harder 
than say finding a leopard in a place where there's no other species of leopard, right? As, at least genetically speaking. So it, it's very, very different. But every single show, every single expedition that we do is the culmination of years of research, months of preparation, and then weeks in the field. And what that boils down to is I have this gargantuan Excel spreadsheet and any single time I get any kind of a hit, meaning like, hey, I, you know, if, it's, if they're not saying I saw big, Bigfoot, but if they're like, hey, I think I saw a black panther, I think I saw a leopard, I think this caiman might exist, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, I put it into this Excel spreadsheet and the list goes on and on and on. And it's really, really lengthy. And then what I try and do is cross-reference all those data points on a map to say, you know, because I talk to people, I'm like, where did you see it? What is it that you saw? And then I start looking at a variety of factors, right? When did the animal go extinct? Who declared it extinct? Why did it go extinct? Is there still enough habitat there? Is there ample you know, food or prey or, or, or water sources, um, et cetera, et cetera. And once I go through this long checklist of variables, <laughs> if enough of them line up, okay, well, the animal was last seen in the 60s. No, no Western scientist has been there since. The locals still say it's there. There's plenty of wild habitat. You know, prey species are disappearing or getting mangled, et cetera. If it starts checking all those checkpoints, then we launch an expedition. So it's a, it's a real lengthy process. You know, it, it, I often make the joke that we're, it's a, probably a little bit harder to make our show than it is to film Kim Kardashian texting at a hair salon because, <laughs> you know, we really put a lot of time and effort into figuring out what these expeditions are going to look like getting scientific permits, getting access. I mean, the, you know, just like coming to you guys, like we just came to you to take a fur clipping from an animal, right? Like it, just, just because it might or might not have some DNA that works, that, right. that resembles it. So it's like, there's a lot of moving parts that go into these expeditions. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, when you, and when you find, when you found one of those eight species, I mean, what is that feeling for you and your team? Because I mean, it's a collective effort, obviously. What is it like when you find that species and you put all, like you said, all these data points, all this work in? What is that? What's the? What's that feel like when you when you find that species? There, there. I I have never experienced a greater feeling in my entire life. I mean, it's just you know, I I'm fortunate enough to have had it a couple different times now. But the the first, second, you know, third time that it happened, and the harder you have to work for it, I, I. it is impossible for me to articulate how overexciting, overemotional, overstimulating it is. Like I'm a scientist, right? By 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 education, by training, I'm a scientist. So I'm trained to like not be overemotional, not be overpassionate. You know, it's like very in the box thinking as a scientist. And I I literally break down. Like I've one of them I was in tears. I, I my wife's never seen me cry. Like one of them I was in tears for. You know, one of them I just couldn't stop screaming. Like I was just screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming for no apparent reason. Like I, I I like black out and lose control because it's like, you know, it's like being Indiana Jones and finding that crystal skull or whatever he's looking <laughs> for, except the entire world says that this animal doesn't exist. And the difference is I don't get rich off of it. I don't I don't get to put it in a museum. I get to save an entire species which is, you know, for me, it's like, it's my entire purpose in life. So it's the, you know, to see an, a, see a man's entire life, life's dream and work come to fruition in like an eight second period is, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot going on. <laughs> wow. And why do you think, um, like, what can you credit, you know, to your own personality or, or even just your team's efficiency? Like, why do you think that there's been so many scientists that agree that something's extinct, but they don't put in that extra effort to, to find out or, or what's keeping, what's keeping other professionals from discovering what you've been able to discover. Well, as I said, it's starting to become a thing now, but up until recently and and, and until today, it's the hardship of getting that done. Um, You know, we, the reason that people aren't seeing these animals or they're missing or they're disappearing isn't because people aren't trying or isn't because they're not there. It's because it's really fucking hard to go to some of these places and to, to live in a hammock or a tent for three weeks in the Amazonian rainy season, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, and so, you know, I think the reason that my team and I have been so successful is like our tenacity. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any quitters on my team. And I went through quite a few guys in the beginning because, you know, we'll extend expeditions all the time. Like we'll leave with the plan of being gone for two weeks and we're gone for two months all the time because we're hot on the trail or we believe we're going to do it or whatever. And this is for 48 minutes of television, you know, like it's crazy how long we spend <laughs> in the field sometimes, but it's, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's just this passion and this motivation 
And I've been very lucky to, to be surrounded now by a team of guys that share that passion. They share that desire. They share that motivation. They have their own specialties. Mine's finding the animals. Some of those is camera work. Some of them is audio work, you know, et cetera. But the point is like, we are willing to go further. You know, we are willing to do harder things. Like I remember in Madagascar, my entire team got dysentery. We were literally puking and shitting all over ourselves mm. for like three yeah. weeks straight. And, you know, uh, like dehydrated, like you're just, you're just trying to get a little bit of liquid down and you have to continue this march every day to get further and further into this habitat. And, and people are lying on the trail, pooping their pants. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. None of that makes it to TV because it's not TV friendly. But that's the, you know, where anybody else would have turned around and said, like, we can't go any further. We can't do it. You know, we got to get to a hospital, whatever. We just march on, you know, where we should mm. be doing six miles a day. We ended up doing one and a half because everybody's lying on the ground. But <laughs> it's like we just push through it. And we've done that time and time again. And we've been rewarded for it. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So to, 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 come, back, to come back here. So when, you, so when you first got here to Wolf Connection and you, 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 know, you did that episode and then... So what made you want to come back? Because you, you've come back three or four times and every time... Now that I know your background a little bit more, I see that fourteen-year-old. You know, when you when you come on the property, you you you're you are constantly smiling. You you have this this like just beautiful aura with the animals, and and, and it's I can see the excitement. So, what's that thing that keeps you coming back? And what yeah, you know what I mean. So, what makes you want to come back and 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 witness you know the wolves and the wolf dogs that we have here? Well, I said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. You know, you guys run a f phenomenal facility. I mean, it's just really wonderful. Like uh, taking science out of it completely, you know, sometimes you can just tell when an animal's happy or when an animal's miserable. I mean, I'm sure you guys can understand that. You can, like you talked about auras. I, I, I feel like I can read the energy of animals better than most people. Probably not better than you guys with your animals, but better than most people. I can tell when I come to the wolf connections that some of those animals come from very difficult backgrounds. I mean, you can tell straight away. And yet, they're all happy or they're all in the best shape that they can possibly be. And there's just, there's a wonderful energy there. And I'm surrounded by like-minded people like you guys who probably can, you know, not, I don't want to be insulting, but can probably understand wildlife and, and animals better than you can people. And, you know, you, you can see these creatures for what they are. You can understand them. You can read them. You can tell when they're happy. You can tell when they're sad. And then you guys take it a step further, which I really appreciate, which is, you know, for instance, the last time we were there, um, Kenai didn't want to come out and play, right? You didn't force Kenai to come out. You let Kenai be, you know, you, you let Kenai make the decision. And I've been to many, many, many different animal places and facilities around the world and around the country, as you can imagine. Not everybody has the wherewithal to, first of all, read that language of that animal, and secondly, read it and let the animal make the decision. You know, a lot of people, I'm reading a book right now called Listening to Whales. They used to train orcas for these marine parks. They would just force the animals to do the behavior, right? Or they would withhold food from them if they didn't want to, or they'd punish them or whatever. They'd assert dominance over them. I haven't seen anyone at the Wolf Connection assert dominance over an animal in a situation in which the animal is, you know, refusing to do something. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. I, I love it there for that reason. You know, further to that, you guys do the great work that you do connecting people with animals. You know, you rescue these creatures. They're not animals brought in from the wild, like a marine park or something shitty like that. You know, it's just, it's just, it's like it checks every box of like good animal husbandry and behavior and human interaction. And it's, it's wonderful to see. I didn't know we had that here in California. So I really appreciate what you guys do. No, we appreciate, I mean, we appreciate the, the kind words and it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's just great to see how the bonds develop. And, and, and like you said, you brought, you brought a group out, goodness, had to be probably a month or so ago. And it's, what's that like for you when you bring, when you bring a group out that's, not that's learning about a wolf or something. It could be any animal, but in this case, it was wolves. What is it like when you see someone starting to learn about an animal and their story and where they're coming from? Do you see sort of those perceptions change at all in a positive way? I'm sure you see it on your show, but like when you brought out that group a month or so ago, what are some of the reactions that you get when, you, when it's more of that education and you know, showing what these animals are all about? Well, one of the things that I love, I don't care if you're a big game hunter 
or you're, you know, the world's greatest conservationist or something in between. I don't care what you are. If you're willing to take the time to attempt to connect with wildlife, an animal, whatever it may be, that helps you understand. It helps you as a human being because, first of all, I believe it's instinctual. But secondly, it just helps you understand the ecosystem and it helps you care about things, right? I made this analogy. And by the way, like I hunt, I'm a spear fisherman, right? I have six world records in it. So I'm not bagging on hunters. But when you're the guy that lives in the city and then once a year you drive six hours to your deer blind and then you blast the deer in the head and then you drive home and you hang your deer on the wall and eat the meat, good for you. Like I'm not, I'm not judging it, but you have no connection to that animal, right? You don't see it in its environment. You don't see it on a daily basis. You don't see it go through spring or fall or winter or reproduce or hardship, et cetera. But when you take the time to go out there and connect with that creature, then you understand its place in the ecosystem. You understand whether or not it should go into the crock pot or whether it should be left alone. You know, whether well, you, you, you develop a, a bond with it and an understanding of it and you see its ups and downs. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that when I bring out a group like I did a month ago, straight away you see people's preconceived notions disappear. You know, you see them begin to, to connect with an animal. You see them begin to show compassion for it. You see them begin to understand it. Some people, and even in that group we had a month ago, are completely disinterested and they will remain disinterested and that's fine. But before we got there, they were all oblivious, right? Let's say there was a group of 15 of them. I don't remember how many it was. There's a group of 15 of them. Before we got there, they were all disinterested and they were all oblivious, right? Yeah, I like wolves. I've seen them in a movie or whatever. But by the time we left, even if only five of them now had a passion for, for the compassion of those animals, for the nature of those animals, for those understanding, then all of us on this podcast have accomplished everything we need to do, right? Because it's, it's opened the doors and opened the eyes to an animal-human connection that wasn't there before, that I think is very instinctual, that I think our modern society is strongly lacking. And that's wonderful for me. It's, it's not about the other 10 that didn't really care or they got their Instagram photo or whatever happened, right? It's about those five that you can see in their faces. They care. They're interested. They connected. You know, it changed them. Even if it's in a minor way, it changed them a little bit. It opened their minds a little bit. And that's what, that, that's what makes me happy. You know, it's not just that I get to interact with your incredible animals, which I love and I'm selfishly always coming back for, but it's, it's the fact that those, that handful of people also got that feeling and that experience and they'll take that with them moving forward. So that's, that, that's why I love coming back and seeing it. Is there a particular wolf that you connect with? I know, like I said, you, you met Coda the first time around. You, is there any wolf that you, since you've been coming back that you've, that you've sort of drawn to? Yeah, I'm very drawn to Kenai. Um, and I think it's because of his aloof nature. You know, he, Sometimes, he, and maybe you guys have experienced him in a different light, but of the four times I think I've been there now, I've only been able to interact with him once. And uh, it's, it's I, you know, there's something going on there. There's something very deep-rooted between, but behind those eyes that, you know, I'm, I'm connected to and I want to understand more of. I'm sure you guys know the backstory. I, I don't recall what, what his backstory is, but there's just, I'm, <coughs> excuse me, I just think he's, a phenomenal animal and I'd like to connect more with him, but it's, you know, on his terms. So I, I have to keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I know you were, um, I know you were mentioning when we brought that group out, Jax, you really, uh, Jax, who was one of our yearlings, you were really looking at the physical characteristics of him because you were describing it to the group about the snout and how he really embodied sort of that wolf physicality. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts <laughs> on him because I know that just stood out to me. I was handling him that day. So I just remember you saying that to the group. Yeah, and I actually remember that wolf very, very well. And I, I just thought that, you know, you guys have a variety of different animals, some from very pure wolf to, to mostly dog. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember looking at Jax's behavior and looking at his physical traits and thinking this is an animal that's very closely related to you know, the ones that are running around in the wild. Like I, 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 you know, you guys rescue wolf dog hybrids, right? People that think, oh, I'm going to put a wolf on my sofa. Um, Jax to me wasn't that animal, right? Jax to me was that animal that could be out there taking down elk at the, the head of a herd right now. And, yeah. um, or sorry, ahead of a pack. And uh, it, it, it was amazing to sit and interact with him and watch him because, you know, he's still very understanding and, and gentle and all the things that a lot of your animals are, but he just, 
to me, and, and I'd love to hear your, your guys' input on this, he didn't belong in the wolf dog category. He belonged out there, you know, out there roaming around Yellowstone, killing elk or whatever, whatever he should be doing. <laughs> yeah, we, we get, I mean, there are a couple, I mean, uh, Steven's taken a, a huge, yeah. a huge like in a Jacks. I mean, he's, I mean, when, when he first got here, I think he was three or four months old. And just to see that transformation, both physically and personality wise, you can see he just, he's got that different behavior. He's got that, there is that aloofness. But what I, what I love about him, and Stephen, you could probably speak to it also, mm-hmm. is that he loves the interaction and the play. When there's when it's mostly pack care members, and we're here and we're we're scooping poop and we're fixing his water, he it's almost like he has a permagrin on his face <laughs> where he just he wants the interaction, he wants the physicality, and yeah, I mean he he embodies all of that. It's really really great. Now he came here as like a little wriggly coyote looking thing. And then all of a sudden, he just became this perfect example of a wolf. I mean, his face, his eyes, his nose. He's just one of the most beautiful animals. I mean, he's my hes my phone background now, actually, from the day you guys came. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's so beautiful. Um, yeah, he does love interaction. I mean, you know, we have to go in as a team just to sort of dissuade him from being playful because that's not really the relationship we want to you know, foster all the time with them when we're, we're scooping and we're, we're kind of doing work. But I can't help it. Every time I go in there, I just love interacting with him. He's so ready to just be in the moment with someone doing something. And each animal, you know, I did it myself, right? We tend to lump animals in. I said earlier, hippos are nervous and skittish, right? Mm-hmm. Generally, they are. But each animal is different. Each, each individual has their own personality, right? I think a lot of people, they go, oh, wolves are mean or, oh, wolves are tough or, oh, wolves are shy or whatever, Right. Here's a perfect example of an of a wolf that's playful, you know, and that's that's his personality. And I, I think people often, myself included, just tend to lump them all into one kind of category and forget that on an individual level, especially with you know high intelligent beings like wolves, they're all different. They all have different personality types. Some are shitty, you know. Some are yeah. just like you meet a grumpy guy at the gas station, right? Some are grumpy <laughs> as hell, and some are super sweet and friendly. And, 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 you know, you really see that at, at Wolf Connection. Like you see all the different personalities of the animals, not just when they're out, but when they're, you know, when they're in their pens and everything else. You can see who's playful, who's happy, who's, who's being shitty that day. Like you can totally read it at, when you have that kind of understanding. And it's just, it's great to see them being themselves. Yeah, I think that speaks to what you were saying before, which is there's a difference between someone who knows animals from a an academic level and someone who knows them from an observational level because when you know some when you know something about a subject and it's it's purely academic, you'll see the species you'll see the animal as a species more than you will as an individual. And then when you kind of have that observational, you know, experience, you see them as individuals, which I think both perspectives are probably helpful to understanding, you know, the whole animal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you get that too when you're, you know, when you're not just, you know, when you're going out and you, and you get that, like we were, you were saying before, that visceral connection with a species that you find. So now it, there, there's some sort of bond there now that you have because of the effort and the work that you put on to learn about this species. And it's not just, like you said, reading through a textbook or anything like that. Not to not yeah. poo-pooing the educational side of it. It's just, like you said, the observational point is that you're putting in the, you know, the physical effort. Yeah, there's got to be a marriage to both of the right. know, studies. Yeah, bo- both are important. And, in, in, you know, the way that education has become in today's society, like we specialize so much in something, right? Like yeah. I'm a mathematician. All I do is crunch numbers. You know, <laughs> exactly. I'm a biologist. All I do is read textbooks. I'm a field worker. All I do is work in the field. Like yeah. we specialize so much in the way our society uh, views, views um, expertise and education that we've lost a lot of that. Like, Hey, I'm an academic biologist, but I'm also someone who goes out there and works with them. Right? Like I do both. And, and uh, there's a lot of different fields. I can only speak to biology because that's my field. There's a lot of different fields like that where, where we specialize so much. Like we read so much. We study so much. We're so much in the textbooks. We forget that the thing we're reading about <laughs> is the living world, you know, and we have to yeah. get out there and experience yeah. it if we actually want to understand it. And, and it's, yeah, yeah. I, I see it every day. And, and I think, again, one of the great things about my show and what I do and what you guys do is it brings people physically into that world. It allows them to come in and, and do that and take a break from seeing it on a screen or reading it in a book. Yeah, it's a co- it's a totally different 
interaction and experience when you're physically close enough or even viewing it through a scope and realizing that, wow, this, this animal is existing in its nat- either natural habitat in the wild or even through an enclosure out on leash, understanding how this animal operates. And I think that's such a different level of understanding, like you were saying, which is, which is you know, yeah. a totally different way. A couple more things just before we let you go. What do you see? I mean, you, you've done such a great job with your, sh- with your show. And, and again, thank you for spending time with us and, and going through this. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the future of Extinct or Alive and, you know, your, uh, what do you feel like your, the future is? And, and do you think you feel the conservation efforts that you're doing are pushing things in the right direction? That you're hitting, like you said, enough young people that people are watching the show for all the right reasons and getting into these, the sciences, whether it be, you know, to, to be in a conservation or not. Yeah. I I think the show has done a wonderful job of that. You know, the, this year, 2020, we've effectively been shut down. You know, I made a couple of productions this year, but with COVID, you know, you can't travel anywhere. It's not responsible to travel many places that you can. Um, But I think what the future holds for me is, is expansion. And what I mean by that is Extinct or Alive, I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, I, I would do it forever if I could. But it's very niche and it's very black and white, right? Is it extinct? Isn't it extinct? And that's, that's great. Don't get me wrong. And it's, it, like you've said, it's inspired a lot of people. It's, it's said, it certainly sends the right message. But I'd love to kind of branch out from that. You know, look at these unexplored habitats. Look at these uncategorized species. Look at this place in the world where we have no valuable scientific data from. You know, how... How do we expand that black and white, is it extinct, isn't it, into a bigger picture, into, you know, David Attenborough does natural history, not so much like hosted stuff, but he encompasses the whole planet from seas to mountaintops to critically endangered species to things that are just pretty to look at. You know, he really he covers the whole umbrella. And I would like to, you know, if I, if I stop doing Extinct or Alive tomorrow, I've gone out on top, you know, <laughs> like we've done a great job. We found a bunch of extinct animals. Uh, it's, it's inspired lots of people. How can I keep that momentum, you know, so that people don't go, yeah, I've seen, you know, like, I don't want to bag on anyone, but like river monsters, right? Yeah. I've seen Jeremy Wade catch a hundred different big fish, right? Like I'm not going to watch season five or whatever. I'd like to, you know, cause that's what he does. He catches a big fish, right? <laughs> so like, I'd like to expand that so that the people that follow me, that, that enjoy what I do and appreciate the wildlife and the sciences can go, cool. I saw him, you know, find these extinct animals. Now he's out there finding these undocumented places or these new species or whatever, you know, it's like just kind of expanding so that people's minds can continue to grow along with me as well about like our natural world and conserving it. So that's, that's ultimately like my big picture goal. And I've never discussed this publicly before, but that's, that's what I intend to do is to just kind of keep branching out and make the world a bigger place, not so black and white, not so small and niche as extinct or alive. Is it there? Isn't it there? Um, and I don't know what form that'll take yet, but that's what I'd like to try and do. Yeah, I mean that that that's great. I mean all the all the work that you've done, obviously, is you know I I I commend it. I, I love it. I, I love the conservation aspect of it and everything else. Um, the one last thing that I will ask you before we before we let you go, and we I want to promote the show. I want to promote your social, everything like that. Is when you hear the word wolf, what's something that comes to your mind? Honestly, at this point in time, you guys are the first thing that comes. I swear to God, wolf <laughs> connection is the first thing that comes to my mind when I hear the word wolf. So I've seen wolves in the wild, right? I've, I've seen them from very far away, you know, 300 yards, 200 yards, whatever. But I've never until coming to you guys been able to see one five feet away, been able to interact with one, been able to depict characteristics of different individuals and behaviors. Like my entire physical education of wolves is thanks to you at the wolf connection. So when someone says the word wolf to me, the first thing I respond to them is, have you been to the wolf connection? Have you (laughs) met a wolf? Have you connected with one? And so I'm not saying that to plug you guys or anything else. I'm being dead honest. You are the first thing I think of when I think about wolves, because it's the first place I have had a physical and emotional connection to one of these animals. Love it. That's the first one that we've heard of that. Yeah. That's thank. I mean, for us, I can't, that's, Thank I mean thank you for that that's that's great. Yeah, that's great. I mean we're 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 glad to have that impact on you as an individual who's been around the world and for for you to have that reaction is is wonderful and we we can't thank you for that enough. 
Um, please plug. All right. So where, first of all, let's go, we'll go down. So Extinct or Alive, where, uh, what's the status of production? What season would you be in? What, what's the status of Extinct or Alive first off? Where, where can people find it? Yeah. Uh, so Extinct or Alive uh, has certainly been slowed down this year. There is more coming. You know, it's uh, Discovery Plus launches on January 4th. It is a subscription-based Netflix type of streaming service. Mm. Um, all of my seasons of Extinct or Alive will be bingeable right there along with my shark shows, uh, the crocodile rescue shows, everything else I've done. So that's the place to check it out, really, Discovery Plus. Otherwise, if you have cable, you can find it on Animal Planet or Discovery Channel. Um, and just, you know, follow along with what I'm doing on uh, on social media, you know, my name is on uh, Facebook, Instagram, I think Twitter. I haven't checked it in many months, but uh, yeah, you know, and I'm just I'm always trying to expand and continue to bring education and wildlife wonder into to the homes of millions. Yeah, what's your uh, what's your Instagram so I can plug that too, where people can go and find? Because you have some awesome pictures on there. Oh, thank you. Some of which are from you guys. Um, <laughs> my Instagram is just at my name with a period in between, so it's at forest.galante. Uh, my Facebook is just Forrest Galante, two R's in Forrest. Uh, same for, I think, my Twitter. But yeah, please don't check that out. Never look at it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where you can find me. And, and you know, if I'm not there and I, I'm home and I got nothing to do, you can probably find me at the Wolf Connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Listen, we we cannot wait to have you back up here physically when this is when things die down want to have you back up we can visit the animals again we can do this in person <laughs> we yeah, can have great. a you know have some yeah, updates that'd be great yeah absolutely um listen uh all the best uh to you uh and your wife and your your little wolf dog at home there <laughs> for uh for the holidays <laughs> Um, again, thank you so much for your continued support of us. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for all the work that you're doing and the education and, and the conservation is, is just tremendous. Can't thank you. Can't thank you enough for us for doing what you do. Thank you guys. Merry Christmas. Yeah. You're Merry well, Christmas man. to you too, man. How's to everybody out there. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. And we will talk to you soon. Bye everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>